Hey everyone, Ron here, one of the pastors at City Chapel. At City Chapel, we're going through the Gospel of Luke together on Sunday mornings, and we're using this podcast to dive a little bit deeper. Um, And this podcast, we're going to be on Luke 6. Um, If you'd like to join us Sunday mornings, we we meet on Zoom. You can find uh, that link at our website, citychapel.org. We meet at 10.15 a.m. on Zoom. Um, But as I said, we're at Luke 6. Just like every other one uh, of these podcasts, we're expecting that you will um, either have the gospel open in front of you or have at least read the chapter before uh, listening to this. So if you have not read Luke 6 yet, go ahead and do that now. Okay, Uh, I am assuming that if you have not read Luke 6, you actually paused this and went and read it. Or at least open it up if you're able. So let's dive into it. Luke 6. This is the Sabbath controversies. um, Controversies on eating, working and healing, and uh, caring for others. Um, And one of the biggest things uh, that Jesus says in this section is that the Son of Man, which is a a term... uh, the the Pharisees and those who the the, the Jews at that time um, questioning what Jesus was doing would have understood it's hearkening back to Daniel, uh, the Son of Man being a title given to um, the the coming Messiah. So the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus says, saying that um, what the Son of Man does or says is right when it comes to the Sabbath, being Lord of the Sabbath. Um, we see here that extreme human need or hunger makes makes a prior makes a claim prior to that of a sacred ritual. A sacred ritual um, being keeping the Sabbath and by keeping the Sabbath, resting on it the way uh, the Genesis uh, account of, of creation, God rests on the seventh day, and, and then in the commandments uh, tells the people to. Uh, keep the Sabbath and recognize it as holy, um, set apart. There's there's to be no working done on that day. But what Jesus says is that human need takes precedent over this sacred ritual of, of keeping uh, the Sabbath. This is another instance of using the law for good, um, which begs the question, what laws do you follow? Laws that you put on your own life. Um, I'm not. I'm not saying like, do you do you follow the speed limit? Do you pay your taxes? Whatever that might be. But what, what laws do you put on your own life? Uh, uh, things that you you do without even realizing it. Um, what laws do you follow? And do these laws? I I actually am going to throw in there. Um, actual other laws uh, like passed by Congress or whatever it is. Um, what laws do you follow, and do they give life, or do they hinder to even dis- or even destroy life? Because if they don't give life, then they're not godly laws, and they should be broken. Good trouble, as the late John Lewis calls it, or as MLK puts it, you can morally break an unjust law. The main point of these these controversies that Luke is is uh, telling us about. And if you hear nothing else, the main point Jesus is trying to show is this. Hear hear this. This is the main point. 
inactivity in the face of human need is not even an option for followers of Jesus. Hear me on this. Inactivity, not not even doing bad things, but doing nothing is not an option if you are a follower of Jesus. To act is to do good or to save life uh, in, the, in this instant. To refuse to act is to actually do evil to destroy life. The choice is not whether to do or not to do, but what will you do? Will you do good and save life or will you do evil and destroy life? Many times that evil we do is by simply not doing anything. The next section is uh, when Jesus picks his apostles out of all his disciples. Uh, Luke is the only gospel that calls the the 12 disciples um, apostles, kind of uh, foreshadowing um, that term that that is used throughout Acts. uh, And then a lot of the epistles use that apostle meaning sent ones. And we'll see them being truly sent ones later. Um, But these are the 12 out of all the disciples and followers that Jesus had. Jesus picks these. But the, the crazy thing with this is right before we get the list of who they are, Luke says that Jesus spent the entire night in prayer before he picked these 12. When's the last time you spent a good chunk praying about something before doing it, let alone an entire night? Even Jesus understood that he needed to be connected to the one who provides and sustains. We definitely do as well. Just some other examples of Jesus praying. Uh, as, uh, in, in Luke 3, at his baptism, Jesus was in prayer. It says, uh, at the peak of his popularity, he withdrew for prayer. Last chapter, Luke 5, uh, this one entire night of prayer before picking the 12. Um, we'll be reminded of Jesus praying when he asks his disciples to say who he is in chapter 9. When he goes up to the mountain is transfigured in chapter 9. Uh, in, in others, um, chapter 11, you see, we'll see him in a lot of, in prayer, 22. Um, you can't read Luke. Um, there's no way a reader of Luke can think of the choice of the 12 as an axe to, uh, as Frederick Craddock says, expedite matters when the job is too big for one person. Um, he spends time all night in prayer picking these people discerning. Then the next section is um, Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount. But uh, the interesting thing about Luke's account versus Matthew's where he goes up on a mountainside so that the people can see and hear him better, and that's why it's called Sermon on the Mount, uh, Luke's actually has him come down from the mountain to the flat places. He, He specifically makes a point that he comes to the flat places, putting Jesus eye level with the people, making a very deliberate move of having Jesus being equal with everyone else um, in, in this teaching. Um, Jesus, in in Luke's account, also starts with the Beatitudes or the blessings, um, just like Matthew's. Um, but the difference between Luke's and Matthew's uh, 
when, when Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit, Luke just says, blessed are the poor. And I just want to make it clear that Luke is clearly addressing the poor and despised of the earth in the literal sense of the words. Not just those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, but truly the poor, the physically, literally poor. As Fred Craddock says um, about this, he says, It's true that the poor in some quarters had clear spiritual overtones, becoming a synonym for saint. Uh, in Hellenistic religious circles, rich describe life with God in eternity, and poor stood for one's miserable existence on earth. But Paul used the term to speak of Christ. Though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich in 2 Corinthians 8. However, in treating Luke's texts, we and others would be advised not to sail above the economic realities into the spiritual realms. Luke does join material and spiritual conditions. Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But he does not allow in the process of evaporation of poor into some condition other than being without food, without shelter, without hope of anything better tomorrow. It is crucial to remember that Jesus is, is speaking about the literal poor, not just the poor in spirit. I apologize if you can hear the siren going on in the background right now. Um, if you can't, well, there is one right now. If you can, sorry about that. Jesus, after uh, the, the Beatitudes, he, he starts off that teaching with the phrase, love your enemies. And he ends this section by repeating the phrase, love your enemies. This is key. This is a key way to tell Christians apart from others. Do they love their enemies? If yes, most likely a Christian. If not, well, they aren't doing what Jesus says is all I'll say. Jesus' followers are, are called to not reciprocate, not retaliate, nor are they to learn how to behave from those who victimize others. Jesus just assumes that his followers will be victims, never victimizers. Uh, but he also assumes that they will not act like victims. But it's crazy. There, There's no teaching on what to do after you strike, after you steal, you hate, you curse, you abuse, you damage. It's just assumed that the followers of Jesus do not do these things. If one is a follower of Jesus, um, is to react to wrongdoing themselves, it is with forgiveness and kindness and generosity and love. An interesting thing about the golden rule, uh, do unto others as you'd like them to do to you, um, it, this, this part um, concludes with Luke's version of that in verse 31. But it's found not only here, but in Matthew 7. But it's also found in Homer, in Seneca, in the Tobit, in Enoch, Philo, and elsewhere. It's One should not be disturbed... Because this saying is not unique to Jesus. Remember, as Fred Craddock says, that the universal embrace of a principle does not make it any less true, valid, or binding. The first part um, of, of this Sermon on the Flat Places, we'll say, 
was how to react to our enemies and respond or, or not respond except with love. But just as our lives are not determined solely by how we react to our enemies, so too are we told how we react to our friends. And this one is about generosity, God's generosity, and how God is generous to everyone. Uh, good, bad, evil, kind, whatever, God is generous to everyone. And, and it makes me ask or, or wonder this question. How do you respond when your friends receive an extra amount of generosity from God, knowing that God gives generously to all? How do you respond to others receiving something good? Is it with spite, jealousy, hate, or is it with gladness for them? Are you the older brother when the younger one returns home in the prodigal story? Confused, upset even, that you aren't getting all those good things? One example that comes to mind, what if all remaining student debt in America was forgiven tomorrow? Would you be mad if you had already paid it off? Or would you just be happy for those that got a burden removed from their lives? How do you respond to God's generosity to others? The next section, uh, I'll just call it on, on judging. Um, the way Luke puts it is that Jesus tells his followers plainly to just stop judging and stop condemning. Stop it. How do you feel being in a group, group being the, uh, the church, where parties are thrown for wayward prodigal children, for tax collectors, for corrupt lawyers, for prostitutes and sex workers, and all of them are welcomed and invited to eat at the same table as Jesus? You see, justice and grace go hand in hand according to Jesus. We see grace without justice and fairness, it quickly degenerates into permissiveness, which we see Jesus clearly not being about that. Go and sin no more, he says. Uh, and justice without grace hardens into cruelty. Don't leave one out or else don't kid yourself, it's not Jesus' example. You're not being Christ-like if you do one without the other, if you have justice or grace, justice without grace or grace without justice. The next section here is uh, the I lessons, if you will. I being E-Y-E lessons. These parts are mainly for leadership, uh, but it clearly applies to all followers of Christ. The main lesson of these teachings is that self-awareness, especially in leadership, but for everyone, but self-awareness is key and necessary. Flaws and imperfections, they don't disqualify one from being a leader. It's blindness to one's flaws or a willing or a will uh, unwillingness to be self-critical honest uh, about oneself or per, or not pursuing growth those are the things that disqualify one from leadership and then the, the next bit i'm just saying that it's on integrity <clears throat> because here the main thing Jesus does in, in these ones is that Jesus strikes down any thought to the contrary, uh, saying that it is wholly inappropriate for his followers to act hypocritically. As a follower of Christ, that is not to be accepted. Who you are, what you do, 
and what you say are inseparable for followers of Jesus. Just as fruit is inseparable from a tree, Jesus says. If what you're saying is bad fruit, you ain't connected to the tree of life. If the way you live is contrary to godliness, you ain't connected to the tree of life. If what you believe is contrary to the gospel, you ain't connected to the tree of life. Any one of these three, Jesus says, is inappropriate for his followers. Then the last part here in, in Luke 6 that I'm highlighting is that house built on a on, on sand part, that, that parable he gives. The, the really interesting thing about Luke's uh, version of this parable is that we find out that both houses are built in the same area. They're both actually built on sand. But the one that weathers the storm, and storms will come, Jesus is saying, is the one who took the time to build down, to dig down and find the rock, that firm foundation of rock deep below the sand. And Jesus elsewhere tells us what this digging is to find the rock. And it's those who spend time reading the Bible and praying. When life is good, when when storms aren't hitting, those who spend time in God's word praying and praying. That's how one builds down to the firm foundation, spending time with God in word and prayer. No other way. That's how Jesus tells us. Which begs this last question as we end Luke 6. Are you digging down to find the rock? Or are you just leaving your house built on the sand?